Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We've done two shows in the past. His name is Joe Simhart. Last name is spelled S-Z-I-M-H-A-R-T. And you can go, I'll put a link to his YouTube channel. He's done a lot of research online on a variety of different subjects. And the theme of his channel is cults in the occulture. And he has a, a cult kind of deep programming history but i read i talked to him about his very interesting book and i highly recommend people check this out and that book's title was i'm going back to it we also did a show about lewis jolly and west um but he also did this book about his kind of uh, it's santa fe bill tate and me how a come on where's my my uh how an artist became a cult, uh, interventionist. cult interventionist. Thank you. So you're really not a deep program. You're an interventionist. Well, but, uh, it's a I'm better sure. term for that. Okay. Well, you probably, yeah, interventionist is a better term. But I was looking through his research on his YouTube channel, and I came across this A Course in Miracles. And something that I remember in uh, my life, like I know friends who've read The Course in Miracles. It's popped up in other uh, conversations I've had with people and there was some kind of vague MK Ultra association with somebody who was affiliated with uh, the writer of this Barbara, oh, Helen Shuckman. The guy's name was William Thetford. But Joe can talk more about that. So, Joe, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Bill. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard our earlier two conversations, um, can you kind of talk about your background, your interest? And then you said you on the pre-show you have studied A Course in Miracles since back in the 70s. And so I'm glad you came on. This yeah, it, uh, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time. And uh, uh, Santa Fe is a hotbed for new age experimental spirituality and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a big art center. So it stands to reason artists tend to be very experimental and in, in, in all kinds of phases of life. And so uh, uh, Santa Fe is a good fit for uh, this kind of thing happening there. The Course in Miracles was released uh, in 1976 as a finished product. And uh, someone, a lady I knew, came up to be around 1977, 78 with it and said, have you seen this? Because she knew I was a critic of the channeling phenomenon. And of course, in Miracles, essentially a channeled document. This uh, woman, Helen Shukman, back around uh, 1965, was uh, having disturbing thoughts. And, and she was part of the uh, uh psychological teams uh, for a, a Columbia hospital with Bill Thetford, her boss. And they were having an enormous amount of problems with their staff there. And she was his assistant. And without giving too much background on her, she, she had a, a long history of religious experimentation and her, her father had a uh, esoteric bookstore. And, and anyway, she, um, had visions about Jesus and, and a lot of things. And so this one auditory hallucination began that kept bothering her and she called it the voice. And, and it kept telling her to take down this dictation. You've got to write. And she kept resisting. And so she uh, told Bill Thetford, her boss, about this, this autonomous, apparently autonomous voice in her head that was telling her to write. And, uh, he said, let's go with it. Let's see what it let's see what comes out of it. And so he encouraged her. And for seven years, she took down notes, uh, random notes from this voice. And it would happen every night. 
and it wouldn't allow her to stop writing until it was ready. And it, and it, and it, after seven and a half years, it said it's complete. And then they had this big manuscript, this pile of stuff in their desk uh, at the hospital where they worked, because they would do this every morning, go through the thing, discuss what the voice told her, and then file it. Um, so th this system of channeling uh, is, is not unusual. It's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, you know, one, you, you could argue that Muhammad, who was inspired by an angel, Jibreel, uh, was channeling information from some metaphysical source and came out with the Quran. Um, whether it's true or not, or how holy it is, that's a whole other debate. But basically, he fits into the channeling thing. Joseph Smith, who used these two scribing stones called Uman and Thuman, uh, was looking in, inside of a hat, and he claimed he could hear or see the words to the Book of Mormon, and he channeled and wrote out over a long period of time the Book of Mormon. Uh, so you could say he crafted it or he channeled it, however you want to uh, say that. And, and so... Those are two examples, the Quran and the Book of Mormon. And then there's some examples in the Bible of prophecy being channeled, for instance. Um, but, but Helen's book claimed that the voice was Jesus, a very modern Jesus for our time. And the reason The Course in Miracles comes out, and this is what it states, is that we are in dire times. And now you're talking about the 60s, right? And that, that we, the mankind needs, to, needs this message in order to be saved. You know, so the salvation, according to the Course, is basically a form of knowledge or gnosis, Gnosticism. And, and the miracle is that we are always saved. There is no time when we are not saved. The only thing that keeps us from being saved or one with God or whatever is, is our thoughts, our monkey mind, our inability to accept it. And so we constantly attack this this rather pure connection we have as God, being God or with God, or whatever way you want to look at it. And the Course is, is, is a, a, a document to help us to break through that barrier of the self and the higher self, or our human self and the God self, or however you want to put it, you know, the perfection of Jesus in our mind as opposed to our human imperfection. And, um, and it has lessons for 365 days, so it takes a year to get through it. Um, it's a manual for teachers, so there's a lot of study groups around the Course in Miracles that have sprung up. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, a church even opened up, Yu Prather, the poet, who was famous, uh, uh, you know, sold a lot of copies of his uh, self-published uh, or published book called Notes to Myself, and they were like poetic statements. The whole thing was based on his meditations on the Course in Miracles. Wow. You know, so... You Prather lived in Santa Fe at the time. He was kind of a prissy kind of a guy in my estimation. But in any case, he, I think he was married. I'm not sure at the time. Uh, he decided to start a church called the Dispensable Church, meaning that at any time in the future, it could be dispensed with. It wasn't necessary. But it, it, it was established and it had a, a congregation and people would come much like they, like they go to any church. They sat in kind of pews and there was an altar area or a podium where people would preach. Uh, they would read from A Course in Miracles. They would do a homily or talk about something. And, the, and the, the, they would do kind of a meditation or a, a silent uh, communion with the voice, Jesus, God, the inner self, whatever you want to call it, as their ritual. 
you know, and they did some singing, uh, you know, they would play some music like Paco Bell's Canon and that kind of spiritual stuff, you know, to make the thing. They even conducted marriages, you know, and, and uh, um, it, it, I think the church lasted for just a few years and then it folded up. Uh, but, you know, 50 people, 60 people, 100 people would come to the services. It was significant. So, so that kind of thing opened up in dozens of ways around the Course in Miracles over the years. And most famously lately, since Marianne Williamson has been running for president, uh, she has been an advocate of A Course in Miracles now for decades. And some of her books are based on it. And, and she you know, taught the course uh, and she advocates its ideology as being good for the nation, for the world or whatever. And so, um, so if you hear her saying some really flaky things during her political campaigns, you can attribute it to what she gets out of the course to some extent. Uh, which are kind of mystical and abstruse and spiritual and holistic and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, uh, so, so just to finish the introduction to this, it's sold about 2 million copies. It's been translated into 16 languages. Uh, you know, so it, there's certainly uh, books that have sold a lot better than this, but, but it's significant in terms of its uh, impact. The last thing I'll say about this, the churches, the types of organizations that picked up on A Course in Miracles in the late 70s when it came out were the New Thought churches, immediately. Unity Church especially promoted A Course in Miracles. And the reason for that is when you analyze A Course in Miracles, which I have, I've written a couple of papers on it, it, it is a reflection of New Thought ideology, which started in the 19th century. It very much fits into that. And so the New Thought churches are like Unity Church, the Church of Science of the Mind, the Church of uh, Religious Science, the Church of Divine Science, Christian Science, um, uh, to some extent, Scientology derives from New Thought. Uh, and the idea behind New Thought is this. It started out as kind of quasi-Christian under a guy named Phineas Quimby. And uh, he was trying to discover a way to do therapy to heal people through talking. And he decided that, that he had to, if he could convince people to take on the mind of Christ, to feel perfection, in other words, the ultimate positive thinking, like you can think your, uh, you can think your pain away, you can think your poverty away, you can think your bad relationship away, you can, as long as you substitute very positive thoughts and don't have any doubts that this is gonna come true, then Jesus or God or the universe or whatever the hell you want to call it can work through you and voila, you're going to have perfection in your life or at least a, an instance of it. Um, so that's, that's basically new thought. So the new thought practitioner is someone who sits there with you and tries to get you to think these positive thoughts or talks you past your doubts and pain and you allow your mind body to heal through this. Uh, Phineas Quimby called it Christian science. At one point, one of his top um, disciples uh, who came to him for a healing was Mary Baker Eddy. When she was Mary wow. Baker, she felt healing from a session with him. Her back pain and whatever went away. You know, it, it comes to what, what we would call auto-suggestion. You can do this through hypnosis. You can heal pain through some people that are highly suggestible. And, and pain will minimize or, or go away. So, so through this process of new thought or auto-suggestion or suggestion therapy, um, she felt healed. She started studying Phineas Quimby stuff and then she came out with her uh, 
science of health or, or whatever uh, book and started Christian science. She turned what he had into a church. He never wanted to start a church. You know, he was just kind of a healer that stimulated all these dozens of organizations that used uh, his teachings later. So, yeah, so basically it's a reflection of the new thought idea. And, and uh, it's, it's um, you know, for instance, all of this movement of uh, affirmations comes out of new thought. You know, there was a famous affirmation back in the early 1900s called that went, um, it, was, it was a guy named Coué from France that repeated it in French originally. And it was, uh, in every day and in every way, I'm getting better, better, and better. And, and millions of people started repeating this mantra in Europe and in Eastern United States, especially in, in order to make themselves feel better. You know, so the, the affirmation or decreeing thing to decree something, to speak something into existence. A lot of Christians uh, bought into this and it, it was called the uh, uh, positive thinking or speaking into existence uh, crowd of, of the uh, Christian churches. There's a lot of those churches around that are influenced by new thought. And you wouldn't know it, you know, unless you knew the background behind these things. Uh, Right. So, it's, anyway, so go ahead. Ask me some questions. <laughs> well, I was just going to say it is remarkable. It like spawned this one book it has spawned a whole industry, individuals, like you said, it's disseminated all the way around and it purports to be from kind of Christ in heaven. But it's kind of quasi Christian, even though it does. I, mean, I was reading through it. It does quote from the Bible, but not like a standard Christian text. It only has it in the footnotes as references, like yeah, she's so it's not focused on the gospels, but it claims to be so. It's definitely quasi-Christian, yeah. Yeah, well, well, think about this. If you if you look at Jesus' teachings in the gospel, I mean, there's this idea that your faith has cured you. You know, this is a big thing with the Jesus teachings, right? And 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 so it wasn't about him sprinkling fairy dust on you in order to heal you. It was about him stimulating your faith in him as God to heal you, right? And if you didn't have faith, you wouldn't get healed. That was basically the formula. So this this takes it another step into metaphysical space, so to speak, where uh, it's not just faith in the gospel and, and the healing and salvation uh, message of Jesus. It's, it's, it's almost getting rid of that gospel message and bringing God more in an immediate relationship with you by saying this, that there is no separation between you and God. You, in fact, are God. And you could also say that about a rock if you really want to. You know, when you look at this philosophy, you know, if, if you think of God as an emanating being, as emanating the creation, then everything that's out there is God. Even if it's right or wrong, uh, evil or not, everything is God. You know, even if it's inert, like a rock, which isn't really inert. I mean, there is a lot of atomic activity going on in, in that rock. Um, it just seems inert to us. But th th the Course in Miracles pretends to help you to become much more energized and, and closer to that realization or what Eastern teachings would call self-realization, that you are... Atman, one with Brahman. You know, there's a correlation here between some Eastern teachings and uh, Course in Miracles, in a way. Right, and they, they it's one of the chapter headings from the like original text when they compile it was uh, of the illusion of separation. Right. So exactly, yeah. yeah. 
This and illusion. And, and, and that the course calls an attack. This illusion, this Maya that we live in is attacking our awareness that we are perfect in God. Right. But there's, it's, so it's, it has kind of Christian language, but the, the dictates like humans and then the angels, and then there's a God, a father or something in Christ. Is, yeah. It doesn't have that worldview, right? No, it doesn't. And I'll tell you the big difference is the, the, the classic Christian, the traditional Christian, if you will, you know, the mainstream Catholic, the mainstream evangelical, the mainstream Anglican, um, they view Jesus as the mediator between God and man. That Jesus is the substitute. Jesus, you know, was sacrificed on the cross in a way, a kind of deicide, God dying on the cross telling us that this is all taken care of. We are saved. We just have to believe this. We have to accept it. Um, we didn't do it. The creation didn't do it. It's God through this creation. Jesus did it. Now, I understand this language gets kind of confusing because you can kind of flip it and say, well, the Course in Miracles is saying almost the same thing, except it's different language. Um, all right, so... That brings me to this. This is the problem I have with the Course and with some of the Gospels as well. Um, you know, Wittgenstein was, was famous as saying, uh, here, let me get it. Um, he, he said this, he says, uh, philosophy is a battle against the bewitchment of our intelligence by means of our language. All right, so what happens is we get caught up in a lot of our own insights and, and language and and then it becomes set like a gospel or a testament and we can't change it and we get bewitched by it you know so uh then we try to force everything into it like as if this is a perfect document of course in miracles or let's say a gospel and then we try to force reality into this container you know and and we end up with a really clumsy sometimes messy, very confusing product, because obviously, if we if we look at A Course in Miracles, it's a highly flawed document. The language is, is really difficult uh, because it was channeled. It wasn't really reasoned out. And most channeling is difficult because it's abstruse and it, it, it's kind of poor poetry. Let me put it that way. Very poor poetry. Unlike Shakespeare, his poetry was brilliant you know, or, or Robert Frost, his poetry is brilliant. You can say he's channeling from his muse, but, but there's some, some kind of beauty and substance there where A Course in Miracles is really clunky. You know, so if, if, if you have something from a perfect God, you would expect something more elegant, something more useful. And it's very, it's very difficult to put A Course in Miracles into use without having a lot of people interpret it for you, helping you discuss it. You could say the same things about the teachings of Jesus. Some of them are really difficult. You know, and, and they, they almost contradict each other in some places, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, don't cause any violence. And yet in another gospel says, take up the sword when you go out, you know, so you, you have to be really careful with these kind of documents and not treat them, not allow them to bewitch you, which happens very often when people get into this. They think it's from God. Therefore, I have to shoehorn my mind into this thing and make it work. When this yeah. thing is unworkable, basically, you know, when you deconstruct it, which I've done for a lot of people, I've, I've exit counseled dozens of people out of Course in Miracles cults by just looking at, say, 10 things in the Course in Miracles, helping them to deconstruct it and showing them 
that, listen, this thing is not only illogical, it's asking too much of you. You know, it, it's, it's, it's like asking a cripple to compete in the Olympics at the level of, of a football player, you know, and, and, but the problem here is that there's no Olympics going on. There's no, no one that can explain A Course in Miracles better than anyone else. Well, it's, it's super long. It's a thousand pages long. I know. It kind of, it did three segments to it, you know, okay. so it's not all one book. It's three books in, in, in jammed together. I mean, you could this. do a li- have a lifetime and people do dedicate their life to this. And also oh, I've known people that have been reading this for 30 years, trying to make it work. It's the religion. Oprah Winfrey on one of her shows in the late 80s held up A Course in Miracles says, this is my Bible. Wow, I didn't know that. You know, and she she brought Mary Ann Williamson on back around 1992. And, and Mary Ann Williamson said, this is my Bible. But because she had some political clout at the time, of course, in Miracles had a big bump in sales after that Oprah show. Wow. Yeah. So she's made uh, she's probably a multi. She's, she's made a, she's made a living off of Course in Miracles. Right. Now, now, Course in Miracles is is uh, ran, run by a foundation, the Foundation for Inner Peace. So they kind of control it as far as its integrity. In other words, maintaining it as they'll argue, for instance, if somebody's misusing it or uh, trying to publish it on their own or whatever, because they have the publishing rights. But as far as them being able to define what it means there's very little they can do about that because anybody can use it much like the Bible and do anything you want with it. Right. So you could have possibly positive aims, but also nefarious ones, right? Like, yeah, sure. You know, it depends on who's interpreting it. Right. There's a lot of cults that the the destructive cults that have used course in miracles, like the full endeavor Academy up in Wisconsin. And then there was another thing called the, 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 the bridge, um, uh, in Colorado that was that fell apart. I mean, I exit counseled a number of people out of that cult. And, and this main document was A Course in Miracles. Uh, you could say they were misusing it in order to control people, uh, which they were. But you can say that about the Bible or the Quran or any document. True. So true. Yeah. I mean, they can all go wrong. But The Course of Miracles is interesting because it does have like a lesson plan, doesn't it? Isn't there? Yeah, like that's social- one of its main things is that the 365 lessons, one for every day. There's right, a so workbook, and then there's a text, the course itself, the text. Right. So it's almost like you're self-actualizing it. So maybe in a Christian context or Jewish or something, you read the scripture, you talk about it, but it's mm-hmm. not like you're going down this pathway. So somebody could really get uh, enraptured or bewitched by this by doing it day after day after day after day. And, and, and they do in that sense. They become entranced by it. Um, it. It becomes a focus for them. Now, to be clear here, most of the people I've met, and I've met hundreds that study A Course in Miracles, are good citizens. They're not bad people. They, they have productive lives. You know, they might even be very well educated. Um, they just find it to be a useful way to meditate on something during the day. And, and uh, they kind of believe in its message that if they keep working it, they'll become closer to God in their daily affairs and, and that sort of thing. So not everybody that studies it becomes an extremist. Um, you know, they, and they might even put it away for three, four months and then pick it up again. So it isn't like some kind of a cult movement. You know, it, it, it it's a, it's a cult object, much like the Bible is, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of devotion to it and uh, it, it's very extraordinary and, and it's for special people, 
you know, that are uh, enlightened enough to understand it and, and that kind of thing. So in that sense, you could say it's a cult object. It's a book cult. But it's not a social cult in this, or a commune cult, that kind of a thing. There, there is no organization that controls people. You know, like let's say the Catholic Church, for instance, has a a, a thing called a catechism, which defines what every Catholic should believe. There is no real central document that tells you how you should use a Course in Miracles. It, it tells you itself how how to do that. You know, and, and there's no, like I said, the Foundation for Inner Peace doesn't manage people's lives when they start buying the course. Right. But I mean, these books, I think they were expensive. Like I, my friend bought them. I don't think they're cheap. They're very well wrought, uh, you know, hardcover books, at least the ones. Yeah. Yeah. You could get a, you get an expensive version, but it also comes in a paperback. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find, and you can probably find a lot of them as used books. Because That's people true. will try to read this thing and, you know, even two million have sold. Probably it's a tens of thousands of people are really hardcore into it at any one time. You know, I wouldn't think of the, the movement is, is much bigger than that. But you say it's the new thought movement. You see all those ideas in there like capitalized mind and all these other kind of things like going on that Christian science has. But it's also, I think, firmly ensconced in the new age movement too right so it's not well new thought new age are almost are, are entirely okay. compatible okay. The, the new th what we call new thought and what we call theosophy the theosophical society are the the two godmothers or the two main funnels of inspiration for the new age movement um the third one being christianity um the, the idea that that the world is going through a great change a new age is coming and we have to prepare ourselves and we have to prepare ourselves according to some kind of an inspiration or document or guru, you know, or, or using ayahuasca or, or whatever it is we do to, 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 to go into the uh, uh, new consciousness. So we have waves of new age movement ideology happening since the 19th century. Um, right. You know, the, like, for instance, the uh, uh, Jehovah Witnesses and, and the Seventh-day Adventists have been predicting a new age coming for a long time. Right. The Masons, the Freemasons came out with a magazine called The New Age back in 1909 or 1910. And mm -hmm. it, it was, you know, kept going until recently. And it had that same theme that, that you know, that the Freemasons were part of this inspired group of people that were going to bring about the new age of the world. And in some sense, the founding of the United States was kind of a new age of politics for the world. Uh, yeah, it was like inspired a quite a bit by, by, by the Enlightenment people and by the Freemasons were really into that. There were quite a few of those people that were uh, highly progressive intellectually that, that formed our Constitution. Right. No, it's, it's really incredible. I was just doing, I did a show on the externalization of the hierarchy. And that was all it. Like, we were going for this new... New era, new age. Yeah, that was Alice Bailey, right? Yeah, yeah. She yeah. was. Uh, she's one of the maybe ten most influential people since the twenties and thirties of what we call the New Age movement. Uh, Alice Bailey writings. And I think she was channeled too. I think she had some kind of divine master who was talking to her. Right. Uh, her. She um, was interesting. She grew up in an Anglican family, married an Anglican minister uh, young, and went to India with him. 
he was abusive. They had two kids, I think, two daughters. And uh, in fact, he threw her down the steps once. And finally, her bishop allowed her to separate from him because he just had this anger problem. And she was very discouraged and ended up um, migrating to uh, California, the, the coast, and was working in a cannery, fish cannery, trying to support herself. And down there, there was a theosophical center near Point Loma. And she got involved with the theosophists and quickly began to absorb it and became a teacher of theosophy, Madame Blavatsky's theosophy. Um, Madame Blavatsky introduced her theosophy, claiming she was channeling information from five masters. There was the Old Man of the Hills, St. Germain, Joa Kool, Kuthumi, and Moria. Joa Kool is the one that intrigued uh, Alice Bailey in the late teens in 1918, 1919. And she started hearing the voice of Joa Kool that called himself the Tibetan. So the Tibetan was like her voice, like Helen Shukman's voice. And she channeled messages from the Tibetan, which is like the externalization of the hierarchy. And, and there's 20 books, yeah. 21 books in the series. And she channeled those books from 1921, I think, until 1949, until she died. And that's the body of her work. And that was her voice in her head. And she, she and, and there's a, the unfinished autobiography of her life, which she wrote. She says that when the, the, the voice that she had from Dua Kool or the Tibetan was ready, she could feel this little click in her brain that it would click in. And then she would just allow it to flow and just write as if she's automatically writing, automatic writing. Um, you know, what's interesting, her form of writing matched her education. It was British English, you know, right. and uh, where Helen Schuchman's form of, of channeling from the God source or whatever matched her education and her background, you know, which is kind of Americanized uh, psychological English because she was a psychologist. And, and you pick up that, that kind of flavor of, of, you know, healing the mind through A Course in Miracles, which is what do psychologists do? They try to help you heal the mind. Right. Um, so most channelers, when they channel God, they channel the God of their own culture. And you can see cultural elements in their particular channeling uh, form. And so Alice Bailey's was theosophy and her British background. Right. So really interesting. Have you ever noticed the language uh, similarities between Alice Bailey's uh, externalization of the hierarchy and QAnon? It's really astonishing. I, I There's quite know. a bit of similarity there. In fact, um, what's, what's interesting is... Uh, uh, some of QAnon was inspired also by my old cult, the Church Universal and Triumphant, which, uh, uh, what's his name, General um, Flynn. Uh, Flynn, yeah. Right, right. He actually led a prayer, and it's on, I have it videotaped, you can find it online, where he's repeating almost verbatim a prayer by Elizabeth Clare Prophet from the late 80s or 90s about sending Archangel Michael and his legions of angels out to do the bidding of God and, you know, impose the will of God on the planet and, you know, like an army fighting Satan out there. And, and uh, he had the whole audience chanting this thing. They had no idea they were chanting some uh, a, a cult group that, that most Christians wouldn't think was Christian. Um, but Flynn's family apparently is into this stuff. Oh, really? So, I didn't know it was his whole family. Wow. I don't know if it was his whole family, but some people are. I don't know if it's his mother or somebody. But, but you know... And I don't know how much they're into it because, you know, the Church Universal and Triumphant has 
a lot of uh, branches, you know, like spinoff sects and cults that came off its teachings. Um, this right. leader, you- Elizabeth Prophet, developed Alzheimer's and uh, she passed away about 10 years ago or more. Well, people can hear that. Uh, I'll put a link to our, our first discussion about your book, Santa Fe, Bill Tate and Me, How an Artist mm-hmm. Became a Cult Interventionist, because you talk about that in depth. And it's timely. It couldn't be yeah. more important because right. the stuff is still out there in the common culture. And just like A Course in Miracles, have you ever heard a, a critique of A Course in Miracles as kind of self-hypnosis or self-hypnotic kind of uh, Well, that's it, what you do? It is because... New thought itself is self-hypnotic. It's, it's auto-suggestion. You're telling yourself you have no disease. You're telling yourself you have no pain. You're telling yourself you're not poor. You're telling yourself you're rich. The whole Trump family was into new thought. Norman Vincent Peale was a minister to the Trump family. Wow. I think he even conducted Trump's first wedding. You know, and, and so when you hear Trump never admit to doing anything wrong, he is like an extreme new thoughtist. Because if you admit to sin, if you admit to failure, if you admit to poverty, you are letting it into your life. If you admit to crime, you are letting it into your life. So Trump's thing is to attack everybody that attacks him because he's perfect. He's a genius. He never does anything wrong. All he's doing, he's just a brainwashed new thought advocate. That's all he is. He's like a puppet to new thought when you hear him talk. I mean, I I just find it ridiculous, but there's millions tens of millions of americans that think this way and that's why they like him you know they, they like the fact that you can deny reality and and get away with it because most americans can't get away with it if they stand in front of a judge and say i'm perfect i'm um smart i didn't do anything wrong it's you you think i did something wrong it's your problem uh you know and he just because he's wealthy he gets lawyers to find loopholes for him all the time the average American can't do that. They talk like that in front of a judge. They're going to get thrown in jail, you know, or in, or, or in a mental institution, you know, one or the other. But that new that. thought explains that kind of odd personality of like, you know, anything you say is water off of my brain or something like it's not. Right. It just always comes back with I'm the greatest. It's almost like a new thought explains it perfectly. It's it's like beyond it's disease, narcissism. It's, 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 yeah. disease. Mark Twain wrote about it back in over a hundred years ago, thinking this was going to destroy America. And he was criticizing Christian science, but he was criticizing new thought. He could see, he was almost prophetic, how this could become an infection in the American spirit. And it has, it's it's, it's come to roost. We have a president that was based on this crap. Wow, it's amazing. It makes perfect sense. Like how, how curious his personality is. It's like... You, you, You can put it right back in there. He's almost an extreme version of it. Yeah, you know, uh, extreme new thoughtist. Wow, he's like make I'm making my will into the world reality. I'm changing it with my brain. You know, even Charles Manson was into this new thought stuff, but he came onto it via Scientology and other stuff. When he was on trial for murder, he said, "I didn't kill anybody. I didn't do anything wrong." Well, that's in your mind. You think that you're projecting on that. So, in other words, in his mind, he's a perfect little guy. You know, he's okay. Um, and it's other people that project on him that says he's a murderer. That's the only reason he's in jail, you know. And uh, so he, he, he would use the same tactics that Trump uses, but because of who he was and he got caught, you know, red-handed being this crazy hippie with this 
crazy hippie family, um, he paid the consequences to, to a great extent. But but he never gave up on that idea that you know this isn't his problem. This is everybody else's problem. You know, interesting. Yeah, he was clear. Like I think Manson was a very advanced Scientologist. A lot of people overlook that. Well, fact. to some extent, you know, he never he never paid for the courses. You know, he didn't. He, he wasn't that into it as far as becoming a Scientologist. But he read the the, the stuff, the Dianetics and, and whatever, and absorbed it. You know, and, and like any good malignant narcissist, he used what he wanted out of it. See, I had heard, I think it was from the um, Helter Skelter, was that he walked into a Scientology center and there was nothing they could train him. So I guess that was it. Maybe that, that was that probably was the it, same yeah. as, as really clear, but it is. Yeah. Inter- yeah. Go, ahead. Go ahead. I just was going to say, like, a lot of this new thought ideas and new age people, maybe it's just me. Maybe other people are you or are more aware of it, but I'm not really as aware now. I'm much more aware of this kind of Alice Bailey, uh, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Clare Prophet and the ideas and how they really are a, something happening right now. They're really affecting the larger culture. There's no question about it. It's affected our politics and it's partly why we're so divided. There's this inability for quite a few people on the right and left to to get out of this idea that that uh, my basic assumptions are reality you know and if you get caught in a basic assumption you're essentially trapped in in a kind of a dependency cycle on your basic assumption you're not you're not willing to change your mind in other words you're not willing to work the problem and see if you could come up with a better solution to how you think you know, you're, you're, you're emotionally tied to this basic assumption state that you're in. And, you know, our entire nation is based on this idea that, that you come up with a working group that despite the differences, you work it out and you, you compromise, you come up with the best ideas and you pick one or two and, and try to run with it until they don't work anymore. And then you change. That's the constitutional way. That was what the original founders set it up to be, but that's broken down now because we have too many people locked into basic assumptions about reality, you know? And uh, uh, so in other words, my thoughts are my reality and uh, my thoughts are God's reality, you know, and I'm not going to change them, you know? So you have people locking down and, you know, and, and what's interesting, Fox news people that developed Fox news knew this zeitgeist was out there and they saw they could make a buck off of this. And I think it was completely cynical what Fox News did. It took advantage of a weakness in American thinking and said, you guys are right. You guys are correct. And we're going to keep feeding you this. And, uh, you know, not that they do it all the time, because some of their news is accurate and, and useful. You know, they're not complete dunces when it comes to reality. But or else you know, they'd have a real problem on their hands. Uh, but these corporate just, heads know this stuff. But they know this. They, they cynically, cynically have left and right. They, so they frame the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They frame it. Yeah. But that's what Trump was really useful to the people on the left. He was their best money maker of all time. They would just oh, yeah. play Trump acting like a new thought buffoon out there. And then they would lock all the left into a way of thinking. And then the right's locked in. And well, you know, just to, a, a lot of what we call new thought is really the left. When you think about positive thinking and channeling and, and, um, uh, you know, even the yoga crowd to, to kind of purify your thoughts and, and, and whatever they, they can fall into that quite easily. In fact, 
you know, with QAnon, if you look at it, there wasn't just right-wing crazies that were into QAnon. It was also called pastel QAnon. A lot of the left-wing, the, 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 the yoga school people, the, the, you know, moms into PTA and, and all that progressive stuff also fell into QAnon in a way. You know, a good percentage of uh, QAnon was, was part of that crowd. And, and it's because they basically, people have these, these, they want to believe that in their gut, they know reality. And they don't want to work too hard to get it, you know, so. So it's, it's not crazy. evolving. And you can, you can interview those QAnon people. They are true believers. It's a great psyop. Like one of them was. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's worked pretty well. And, and yeah. uh, but I don't think it's so much a psyop as, as a movement that's taken advantage of something that's already there. People tend to be, most people I meet tend to think they're psychic, or at least psychic, something psychic is real, when there's never been any evidence for it, none, you know, but, but you, if you start telling someone like most of the, when I worked in a hospital for 25 years, most of the staff, the nurses, you can, you know, even educated doctors in some cases, believed in the full moon effect. Policemen yeah. did when I yeah. talked to them, they go, oh, it must be a full moon. And, and, and it, the full moon effect on psych hospitals and activity in a hospital is bogus. There isn't any. But you they would have seen it is. over a quarter century. Yeah, you would have seen it. Yeah. So, you know, I even showed a study at our hospital, which I did. I ran a, a thing on admission activity, which would indicate higher activity, you know, full moon energy, um, which is what they claim. And, and the day before, the day of, and the day after a full moon, I ran that over a three-year period. And when you look at the whole spread, there's absolutely no statistical difference between any other phase of the moon and the full moon in terms of admission activity to that psych hospital, none. We weren't any more busy overall during a full moon period than we were on any other day on average. So, you know, that's just one small sample, but there's dozens of, of good research done on this. So yeah, the full moon, it affects the tides. It has you know, animals can see better at night, so they got to be more careful because predators can spot them. It affects reality in some way, absolutely. But but as far as uh, changing the psychology of a human being, it's you know, it, it's it's not what the astrologer says it is, and it's certainly not what people that work in emergency rooms say it is. Yeah, right. It's interesting, like the human uh, propensity or tendency to believe in all those things goes back all the way back in time, like astrology and psychological. Noetic Institute is studying all that stuff now. Oh, yeah. It's it's important for us as human beings to maintain some control over this mysterious reality we have. So we invent religions, we invent totems, we invent, you know, organizing principles that, that keep the tribe together. You know, we have sacred trees. Uh, we do rituals before it. Um, the tree talks to somebody and the, uh, you know, there's a shaman in the tribe and the tribe interprets that. And, and sometimes the information is quite good. And if it isn't good, if the, if the shaman misleads us, we kill the shaman, you know, right. that's what's true even in the 19th century among Navajos. In other words, if you were a, a, a seer or a sorcerer in the Navajo tradition and you lied, you came up with false information. You, your life was in, at stake. You better, if you're going to be a sorcerer, if you're going to be a seer, if you're going to be a prophet, you better be telling the truth because we're relying on you. Our very lives, our decisions rely on you. Our crops right. rely on you. 
So that's it, interesting. It, I think that's even in the Old Testament, Joe. It's I think in the Old Testament, you yeah. stone false prophets because you yeah. a false prophet could destroy the pro the tribe, the whole tribe. You yeah. know, so if you're going to be a prophet, you better have your wits about you and reality test what the hell you're going to say before you start talking. You know, <laughs> otherwise you might get buried in stones. Right. That doesn't happen today. You know, the the, the channeling phenomenon, like with the Course in Miracles, is an open territory. It's like you know, it's like like fine art, I say. It's a Marshall McLuhan said, art is anything you can get away with in the late 60s. Talking right, about modern art, you know, same but, thing. Religion is anything you can get away with these days. There's no real guideposts out there for this unless it goes really bad. Like, you know, some some guru comes up with a, a secret potion that's going to heal you and suddenly half of his uh, congregation dies. Well, the government's going to get involved real quick and wonder, What's going on here? What are you feeding these people? You just killed, you know, 50 people and you're going to get prosecuted, you know. So uh, until something like that happens, it's mostly just a free for all when it comes to spirituality and religion. It really is. And I think it's interesting, like you mentioned, Muhammad, Joseph Smith. We've talked about Bailey and then uh, Shukman. These channel, there's so many channel books like there were channel, the, there's so many different chronicles and channel. If you go to a New Age bookstore. You probably oh, yeah. know more than me, but I can't no, remember. No, no, there's tens of thousands of them, yeah. at least. Back in 1987, a, a TV show I worked with that was looking at channeling. Um, it was called um, West 57th Street. And they were looking at Penny Torres, Mafu, who was a channeler that was a knockoff of Ramtha, the channeler. And Mafu became quite popular and wealthy, or Penny Torres, who channeled this quasi-spiritual being. Um they did a study in Los Angeles, a survey, and they found out in, in Los Angeles alone, there were 1,700 people channeling gods and gods and angels and stuff. That's in, in that one 1987 survey. Wow. So you so expand that, you know, to Europe and Australia and Canada and everywhere else. I mean, you, you count and see what you come up with. You're looking at hundreds of thousands of channelers out there right now. Right. Good point. And, so and that really to me is a conservative amount. I think you're right. But California always attracted people on the new age or the fringe. It was always kind yeah, of like the frontier. It, it got I, more, I think it got more publicity, but they were in Texas. They were in uh, Arizona. They were in New York City. They were in Wisconsin. You know, I found them everywhere. Florida. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's always like some Atlantean or something. It's almost kind of close to UFO tradition in some. Object. Very much so. Yeah. It, it, it kind of, you know, after the Roswell incident, you began to see people channeling space brothers, UFO beings. One of the most famous was called Sananda. It was a space brother up there floating around in some ship and, and coming to save the world. Sananda was a stand-in name for Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, become in that particular called a space brother. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that. Was he a Maitreya? Sananda Maitreya, there's a website about him right here. Yeah, that, Maitreya has been abused and used by dozens of cults. It's, you know, the Maitreya tradition comes out of Buddhism. And in Mahayana Buddhism, it claims that in the future, which is tens of thousands of years into the future, the coming Buddha would be Maitreya, you know, like a Messiah type figure. But that's far, far in the future. But, you know, leave it to the New Agers. They want to have it now. You know, and so you have Maitreyas appearing all over the place right now. Right, there's, there was that guy Benjamin. Dozens Crum. of Maitreya cults out there. There's not just one. Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, you have an amazing survey of all these dudes. Well, well if, if you look back in the 1980s, Benjamin Krem, who passed away, uh, he was a follower of Alice Bailey, 
and he began to channel messages from this Maitreya being that he claimed was going to appear in 1982, was going to come in an airplane and appear to the planet Earth and, and become our Messiah, our Savior. He started a cult or a foundation in England, and uh, Krem uh, took out full-page ads in the New York Times, the Tokyo Times, the Los Angeles Times, and one other place. I mean, full-page ads in these newspapers saying the Christ is now here. Look it up, 1982, the Christ is now here, advertising Maitreya. And this whole thing... Million dollars on that campaign, like a huge amount of money. He went, he went lecturing all over the place about this, and I saw him twice lecturing. I, in fact, I questioned him um, about it in 1982, before um, before the appearance of the Christ was supposed to happen, and which was in the spring. Well, the spring came and went, and there was no Maitreya, and so he then backtracked away all false prophets do and say, well, he was ready to come, but people weren't ready to receive him. So he's going to wait a while. <laughs> and, so, the way it is. and so it went. So he developed a, a cult following and this this kind of a foundation that, that, that supposedly helped the poor around the world and whatever, you know. But, but, but essentially, he was another clown in the circus of the new age, you know. Did, and, uh, did you find his, like I did a show on Constance Cumbie. I don't know if you remember the book. Yeah, I know her. I, I, I've talked to her in the past. Oh, okay. Because she yeah. said he had hypnotic power over the the crowds or the groups that were there. Did you sense anything like that? Or was he just, I, I did see it. Um, but you have to remember that, that, that a charismatic relationship is a relationship. It isn't a power that the, the guru has or that he had. So people already developed a relationship with Krem before they even came, most of them before they came to one of his talks. And, and so I was, as I was observing, because I was an observer in, in his, his, about a hundred some people were there, about half the audience did get entranced with him. You could see it. You know, they were in that, that kind of suggestible, smiley face zone listening to him, where the other half were kind of like, eh, and they kind of even walked out in the middle of the talk. So, so he didn't, he, he, so the charismatic relationship is a relationship. You have to be, able to get people to project something onto you in order to get them entranced with you. Um, you know, the same person that, that can uh, entrance a small crowd of people will cause a reaction in other people that walk away and say, that guy's a real asshole and walk away. They never felt anything. You know, they just think he's a buffoon or, or full of himself or, you know, talking nonsense, and, and they don't feel any of that so-called hypnosis at all. So it's like the, the suggestibility, the person's pre-primed almost. You've got like to participate in it. you got, you got to either be highly suggestible, you got to be really into that stuff, you know, or you have to allow your, your critical mind, the prefrontal cortex to float. You don't filter. You just allow it to go into your emotions, and boom, you're one with the speaker. You know, you're smiling, you're feeling everything, and but I would uh, say that's kind of like the, yeah. the star celebrity uh, Same thing. dynamic. Like that's what they want. Same thing. Yeah. If you saw the movie Elvis <laughs> and you watched how they portrayed the crowds, you know, which was kind of real, that's what happened. Man, he really, especially the women, I mean, he had them going. You know, they were in another world. Or the Beatles, too. Like those Beatles, same thing. Frank Sinatra used to do it to people. Yeah. Women especially. There were women uh, that would go to Frank Sinatra concerts and throw their bras and panties up on stage. You know, yeah. that's how much he could affect them. Yeah.
That was amazing. Um, Joe, do you have time for a few questions? Yeah, certainly. Somebody asked, are there any seminars connected with this group with the uh, Course of Miracles? I think, I think so. I, you mean in terms of uh, promoting it? I, I, I imagine there are. I, I don't keep up with it, so I, I don't know. But um, I imagine if you looked on uh, Course in Miracles study groups, you'll find things online. Just put Course in Miracles study group in the Google and, and something will come up. And then somebody asked, uh, Sheila asked, could your guest speak about William Tetford's link to MK Ultra if possible? We talked about that in the pre-show. Yeah, he, um, I read about it. Um, I, I think you have to take a step back when you look at things like MK Ultra, and, and you, you know, because I've read a lot about it. There's quite a few studies on it done. And, and uh, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was really a setup to kind of compete with the Russians that were exploring psychic power. Um, you know, there was a book that came out you know, back in the late 60s, you know, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain or whatever. And, and the United States set up their own mind control experiments, especially during and after World War II. Uh, and MK Ultra came out of that. You know, there was the whole idea of finding a truth serum. You know, how could you get spies to spill out the truth? LSD was one of the drugs they were using, but, but they found it was kind of useless because people were tripping and connecting with God. They weren't telling the truth about anything, you know, on LSD. Some I, heard people went they, in, all, uh, I heard they did all the studies to use the finest drug to get people to talk, and they ended up with alcohol. So they did all these studies and said... Right, and, you know, you end up with sleep deprivation and all of that, but, but what they found out was exactly what the Chinese found out. They could get people to talk openly, you know, uh, if, if they could convert them to Maoist thinking to correct their false thinking. So they would try to get the person in, in these re-education camps in China over time to convert like to the communist religion. So the CIA for all its efforts with drugs and mind control and waterboarding and all that crap they were doing, if you could be nice to somebody and you could convert them to your religious way of life, whether it's constitutional America or whatever, um, you're more likely to get truth out of them. That was the ultimate end game of what they discovered after doing all of that, you know, which is not that hard to, 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 to understand. Um, you know, just like in, in psychotherapy, if a psychotherapist can gain rapport over time with someone that's very paranoid and they get a trust bond going and get them to believe in the therapy and keep coming back after a while that person will begin to unload and, and start to heal in a way by, by um, letting the psychologist know that it was their enemy to start with now is their trusted friend. So this is what the, the Chinese communists would do in their re-education camps, whether they're with prisoners or with, uh, um, you know, people that, that were, they considered uh, anti-communist uh, would try to convert them. Um, it wouldn't work. You know, some of them would only pretend to convert because they got tired of the coercion just to get them off their back um, and uh, to, to keep their job, you know, because they didn't want to lose their job. And so that kind of quasi or fake conversion would go on all the time. But some people really did convert, you know, and uh, become true believers. Um, you know, like uh, this book I have, um, uh, Perfect Soldiers, about the the pilots that flew the uh, planes in 9-11 uh, into the thing, they, they were converted 
into Islam and they were living in America for a couple of years among Americans, like average people uh, exposed to everything we have here, being nice people. And yet inside their head, they were converted to the extent that they really didn't need somebody telling them what to do all the time. They were convinced of what they were going to do. And they went through that process to the point of killing people. Um, you know, so religious conversion is the most powerful form of mind control. So here's a question. What should one do when dealing with someone who drank the Kool-Aid and has brought the New Thought ideology? It's a good question. Uh, you know, it's something I did for a living, which was uh, family would call you in. You'd set up a meeting with the person somehow. Uh, maybe they didn't want to talk initially, just like people don't want to talk to you when the family's trying to convince them to go to rehab. Uh, but, you know, you gain rapport with them and you say, listen, I think you might want to hear what I have to say uh, about the group you're in or about this ideology you believe in. And, uh, you know, let's talk for an hour. The hour could lead to two hours. It could lead to three hours. And usually if it's successful, it usually takes about 30 hours or several days to get people to rethink a point of view or an allegiance to a group that, that has uh, uh, if it's going to work. I mean, I've had people leave a cult they were deeply committed to, like within four hours. That's rare. But usually it took, if it's successful, it would take me days of, of, of work, 10-hour, 12-hour days of working with them and their family. It ain't easy. And you've got to be kind. You've got to gain their respect. You've got to listen to them, even if it's crazy for a while, to explain what they think. Um, you've got to be able to um explain what they think in their terms in other words if someone's in the harry krishna group when i was talking to them i had to be able to explain hinduism to the family much like the harry krishna's believed hinduism in order for the person to begin to trust me so um i've had some of my clients and say the harry krishna's wonder if i was hindu because i understood their religion so well you know so you have to go in very well prepared if you if you're going to try to dissuade somebody from new thought, you better know new thought inside out. You better know how they believe and how they don't believe. You better know maybe 12 or 13 different groups that use new thought. You know, you've got to be on your game and not have to look things up on the internet in front of the person, you know, when, you, when you're talking to them. You've got to have flow in your conversation. You've got to have some kind of, you know, confidence. And not only that, you've got to back up what you say because they're going to look it up later. You don't want to be caught to be a liar. That's one thing, or 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 mistaken. You know, you're 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 using somebody's fake information about New Thought, and you start repeating it. Like, you know, New Thought is of the devil. If you start using that kind of a Christian argument, you're going to lose your audience real quick. Right. I don't think there's that much of that kind of like, you know, there's evil spirits or demons or devils in New Thought. Is that? Would you agree with that? No, no, no. But 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 the criticism of New Thought. The criticism of of that kind of religion from fundamentalist Christianity or fundamentalist Islam or fundamentalist anything is usually that it's demonically inspired or whatever. So you got to be careful with that line of criticism because uh, there's really not a whole lot to support it. You know, it might have flaws in it, but it doesn't mean there's demons dancing in it. Joe, we are at the one hour mark. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? I mean, it's a great discussion. Your uh, breadth of knowledge is amazing. People need to check out your YouTube channel. So I'll put a link to that. Yeah, um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess all I have to say is if uh, you know people that are into this and you're worried about their behavior, like they're changing diet, they're changing friends, they're, you know, whatever, uh, they look like they're getting radicalized. The best thing to do is just stay in touch with them, maintain a friendship, allow them to talk about it, you know, allow them to kind of recruit you, but just tell them, yeah, it's not for me. Um, I'll look into it, you know, and if I come up with something, can I, in other words, you ask them permission questions. If I find something I don't quite understand, can I ask you about it? You know, or if I, if I come across the criticism, can I run it by you and see what you think? You know, so you ask a permission question before going into any critical territory. And if a person says, yeah, sure, I'm open. Well, you've got, you know, then you can walk in the house, you can walk around with them and uh, explore the thing and, and come up with uh, ways to help them to, to engage in, um, you know, what, what I said to, to open this, that a, a way to battle against the bewitchment of their intelligence by means of their language, <laughs> you know, uh, because a lot of us do get bewitched by the things we believe in. Very true. And where can people find your book? It's Santa Fe, Bill Tate, and Amazon.com. If you just look on Amazon, it's sold through there. Um, it's, um, yeah, I just put uh, my last name, Simhart, Santa Fe, Bill Tate, and, and it's going to come up. It'll pop up. It's S-Z-I-M-H-A-R-T. And if yeah. people want to follow up with you or contact you, do you have an email or website or anything you'd like to? Well, I have an email. Um um, I, I do answer emails as best I can, um, just to let people know if they're listening here, I'm full time, uh, right now responsible for taking care of my mom with a little help from family and, uh, hospice, uh, she's 99. So was, I don't know how that could go on for months. So I don't have a lot of time on my hands right now to be, um, engaged with people that need a lot of, of help or, or want to engage in discourse. I can, you know, answer a question and give them leads and books and whatever and uh, go from there. Right. And so I'll put your email in the show notes. I wish you the best. I hope everything. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. L listen, mm -hmm. uh, we've been going through this for quite a while. My mother's a very um, uh, uh, savvy person about her state and, and she is ready to go. <laughs> it's been there for a year. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I wish you the best. And Joe, thanks so much for uh, sharing your time. Sure, thank you. you. Took time Appreciate out of your busy right, day. Bill. Thanks so much. Come back anytime. It's an right, invite. Good. If you ever want yeah. to talk with anything, I'll try to find somebody to debate, debate QAnon. I can't find it. But if I do find somebody to, be, to debate QAnon with you, I will. you'll be the first person I'll email. So I'll be nice to so All right. Okay, I know you will. Take care. All right, take care. Thanks bye so bye. much. Thank bye. you.